when it's time for adventure. It's time for Superman. Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor in Superman 3. This time, Richard Pryor has come to Metropolis. Oh, I'm sorry. And he's got something to sell. <laughs> he's the best con man and the world's greatest computer genius. Let me tell you something. I can't ski. But then he falls. <laughs> for a scheme to turn the ultimate computer into the ultimate weapon. Well, what would it do for me? It would do anything you tell me to tell it to do. A machine so powerful. Baby, it's daddy. It can control the earth. down to business change the weather and reprogram superman but you never get here well, i hope you don't expect me to save you because i don't do that anymore <laughs> on this special episode of movie geeks united we welcome back our returning guest uh, the great author ray morton ray has joined us many times on the show to talk about the production of many films that have resonated with popular american culture in various ways and he's written many terrific books about the production of films that we all know like close encounters of the third kind a hard day's night and the king kong series of films anyway we're here today to talk about the production of superman 3 he was previously on the show to talk about superman 2 a couple of years ago i believe three years ago i believe we talked about mm. superman 2 and so it would only be logical that we would pick up with Superman 3 when the, when it was time for a 40th anniversary, which we are doing today. Absolutely, so, um, yes. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. Uh, Superman 2, of course, was released in December of 1980 uh, everywhere but the United States, and it was released here in the summer of 1981. We like to think of it as a 1981 film, but it's really technically a 1980 film. So by the time Superman 3 hit screens in... Well, I guess that was June of 83. It was a much-anticipated film, and with Richard Lester taking over the production of Superman 2 due to uh, several uh, disagreements with the Salkinds that Richard Donner had had, and he uh, actually was interested in doing at least two more Superman films, and when he was taken out of uh, Superman 2, that kind of put an end to that. So we'll pick it up with what was going on at that point, what they were going to do next, they obviously had a hit on their hands with Superman 2, and usually, as it is with in the movie business, if you've got uh, you want to strike while the iron is hot, and that's Absolutely. what they wanted to do. So uh, I'll let you tell us a little bit about how this the ball got rolling on Superman 3. Well, the, when the Salkinds originally purchased the uh, rights to Superman. They originally had in mind the idea of doing um, an entire series of films. They they had the idea of like that it would be like a Bond series. So there'd be a new one every couple of years and that it would go on and on and on. But Superman 1 and Superman 2 turned out to be such gargantuan projects and difficult projects to pull off that I think their ambitions ended up getting a bit scaled back. 
in the in the aftermath of Superman 2, Ilya Salkind, who was the executive producer of the projects, um, he came up with an idea. He he was a big fan of the comic book material, not just the character of Superman, but all of the the different issues. And he grew up in the 50s. And so that was the year of sort of high fantasy Superman and the Superman family, as they used to call it. So all the other super characters, Supergirl and Superwoman and uh, Crypto, the Superdog and so on. Um, so his idea for the third film initially was he wanted to do a sort of a fantasy spectacular um, and so he had come up with a script in which Superman uh, battles uh, Mr. Mixelpitalik, who's the little elf from another dimension or sprite from another dimension who causes all sorts of problems. And into this story of battling Mixelpitalik, uh, who they wanted Dudley Moore to play because um, uh, he's a man of short stature and so was Dudley Moore, obviously, um, he would come in contact with Supergirl although it was kind of a different version of Supergirl because in the comics, Supergirl is Superman's cousin. But in this script, Superman and Supergirl were going to get together and maybe even get married. So obviously it was a different sort of version of the character. And uh, Brainiac was going to be in it. Um, and so there was this, this sort of a – and it, would, it was jumping around uh, in time. Uh, there was segments set in medieval time and segments set on other planets. So it was a kind of a giant in scope fantasy epic. Um, and he presented that the, the production of the Superman films were very um, the structure was kind of odd. They were independent films. The Salkinds had purchased the rights from originally uh, DC Comics, National Periodical Publications. But in the midst of all those negotiating, National Periodical was bought by Warner Brothers or Warner Communications. So they were kind of involved with Warner Brothers, and that's how the deal came to release the films through Warner Brothers. And in the making of Superman, Warner Brothers ended up taking uh, part ownership of the films, which the Salkinds did not care for. But the point being, Warner Brothers was now kind of involved in the films. They had some approvals because the first the first two films uh, were financed independently. Uh, Alexander Salkind went around to all sorts of different groups of investors and put the money together. And, uh, and and that's how they financed those films. But they got into so much trouble and ended up having to sell a bunch of it to Warner Brothers. So when it came time to do Superman three, they didn't do any of that. They basically um, Warner's basically financed the film. It was still an independent production, but they were the people who loaned them the money. The point of it being that Warner's had more input into this than they did in the genesis of the first two films. And anyway, Ilya Salkine presented his story concepts to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers didn't like it because they felt, first of all, it was going to be way too expensive. But also they felt it was so fantasy oriented. You know, the great thing about the first two Superman films was Richard Donner's concept of verisimilitude, which is to establish a reality from which the fantasy could could jump off from. Because, audio, you know, cinema, no matter what you do with it, no matter how fantastic you get, is basically a realistic medium in that you're photographing real people, usually in real environments, although not so much in our, our CG era. And and Warner's just felt like there was no reality to the script that audiences could grab onto. So they just didn't want to do that. Um, so they asked 
the Salkinds to come up with a simpler idea. And one of the core ideas in in Ilya's treatment was that Superman would be um, turned into a villain at some point, basically turn against himself. Like he would become bad and then at some point split into two and fight himself. So they kind of started over using that idea as the core. The original title of the screenplay is was not Superman three. It was Superman versus Superman. Um, and so so that became the jumping off point. The other key jumping off point was that um, famously Richard Pryor had appeared on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show. And he was a big Superman fan. And he I, I guess at the time he appeared, he had just seen Superman, two, And he was very enthusiastic and he basically acted out huge pieces of the movie on the, on the tonight show and yeah obviously put a comic spin on it and all but he was so enthusiastic that that Ilya and and Pierre Spengler the producer they had seen this and thought and Richard Pryor at the time was a big uh movie star so the idea was let's see if we could get Richard Pryor into the Superman film so that was the other jumping off point and then the final jumping off point was um that that was the uh, era when computers were just starting to become a big deal in our lives. So they also wanted to do something with computers. Uh, so so those three ideas were kind of thrown into the hopper. All of the fantasy stuff was rejected. Um, and then they brought in uh, David Newman and Leslie Newman, who had written some of the drafts of Superman 1 and had written the final shooting script for Superman 2 after Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz left. So because Superman 2 was a hit, they invited the Newmans back. Um, and uh, Warner Brothers also invited Richard Lester back. Uh, he initially declined, but they offered him more money than any director had been offered in history to come back. So uh, the, as the story goes, his wife said, what are you out of your mind? Of course you're going to do it. Um, <laughs> and, and so the Salkinds and the Newmans and Lester basically brainstormed what became Superman three. There's a lot of uh, other things here that, that are kind of interesting to note. Uh, I, I think um, because they were originally going to title it Superman versus Superman, and then it was retitled after the producers of Kramer versus Kramer threatened a lawsuit of all things. <laughs> right. I, I've read that. I'm not sure I don't know if it's true or not. True that but, is, but, but you know, sure. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. And we always yeah. have to, you know, this is just research that I've done. I can't yeah. stay with a hundred percent certainty that these things actually happen, but these are just some interesting things that I've uh, come across, uh, that there was actually in the original, uh, the climax of the original film, would have seen Superman, Supergirl, Brainiac, Jimmy Olsen, and Lana Lang time traveling to the Middle Ages for a final yes. confrontation and fiefdom taken over yes. by Brainiac. <laughs> <laughs> and then he defeats. Yeah, it was a little complicated. Uh, right, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit out there. And then he defeated yeah. Superman, and left him behind as a helpless surf, yeah. uh, supposedly. <laughs> And then Superman and Supergirl being married at the end of either Superman three or four. I don't know. This is yeah. kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah. So and then they actually, I think, considered selling it to Dino De Laurentiis, the rights, because of the uh, uh, he had more financial backing, and so they thought about that for a while. I, supposedly, I don't know. Yeah, they well they had taken their original um, option. 
when they made their contract, I believe it was for 25 years. And so they had the rights to make these movies for 25 years. And famously, I, I hesitate to say they got in o- over their heads on Superman. I think ultimately they did. But part of the thing is that was the beginning of the special effects science fiction fantasy movie uh, modern era. And and I think no one knew how much a Superman movie was going to cost. So they did get in over their heads, but not necessarily because, you know, they didn't know what they were doing, but more because no one knew how much these kind of movies cost them. But the point is they were like Dino De Laurentiis in that time, independent producers. Uh, they like to raise the money from um, various territories. The idea was you would pre-sell the rights to a film of various territories across the world and use that money to make the movie. They ran into a lot of financial trouble on Superman one. They basically didn't have enough money to finish it, which is why they famously uh, did not uh, complete Superman two at the time. Um, And Warner brothers ended up coming in and, and purchasing huge pieces of the film. Uh, They got distribution rights from many territories and, and the Salkinds did, they basically lost, the ownership of that first film they kept the ownership of the second film but they were they took them until the release they said of superman 3 to even begin to break even on the whole project so by the time they were getting ready to do superman 3 i think they had soured on the idea that they were going to do 10 films and i know they did look around for buyers dino was one of the people they considered they ultimately sold the rights after supergirl to or they lease the rights to canon of all people i think we would have been happier if dino had taken it over but uh can you know it ended up with canon <laughs> at, yeah. at a certain point yeah it became canon fodder <laughs> yeah. yes absolutely absolutely <laughs> oh sadly 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 yeah. it's amazing that these films you know they started out so strongly and when mm-hmm. less than 10 years this whole franchise is yeah. franchise uh as it was being controlled by the Salkinds had completely imploded. That's just, that's kind of mind boggling. The the thing that's interesting, it, it, it it shows you, I, I think the importance of casting the behind the scenes talent, as well as the in front of the camera talent. And, and I, I think the Superman series in general was poorly cast behind the scenes. Um, Richard Donner was the perfect director for those films and Tom Mankiewicz was the perfect writer for those films. And they both were gone after after the success of Superman 1 because of various issues between Donner and the Salkinds that I know we've talked about in other podcasts. But like the interesting thing, if you've ever read the original, well, the, the origin of Superman, the movie was that Mario Puzo wrote the initial drafts of both Superman 1 and Superman 2. And if you read them, which I have read them, they are they basically only contain some of the basic ideas that ended up like the plotting and all of that. None of it was in Mario Puzo's script. So Robert Benton, David Newman and Leslie Newman came in and they really wrote the early drafts of what eventually became Superman, the movie. But if you read those scripts, they're kind of fascinating because not every scene, but basically every scene in Superman 1 and Superman 2 is in their drafts. But also there's a ton of other things in the in the drafts. And they're just kind of, I don't know, loosely plotted. They're very episodic. 
the story doesn't build to anything um, in both their Superman one and their original Superman two screenplays. Um, so it's just kind of random and they clearly did the project with their tongue in cheek. Like they're, they're jokey and they they don't take the character particularly seriously. I don't know if there is, as incredibly campy as their reputation has, but they clearly don't take the world of Superman seriously. They always go for jokes. So you have these kind of light, jokey, not very well-structured stories. Tom Ankowitz came in with Richard Donner, and one of the things they did is they imposed a structural discipline on the stories. They they basically created story arcs for both films and really pulled them together and focused them. And as much as they could, you know, the, the Donner Superman uh, first one and, and the, his portions of Superman 2, they they are not deadly serious films, but they take the character of Superman and his world seriously and they have fun with it rather than making fun of it. And the problem is for me with the Benton and Newman drafts is they kind of made fun of it, which I don't really think is a great approach. And when Donner and Mankiewicz left, the Newmans came back and kind of went back to the same tone Superman 2 works as well as it does, I think, because it still has Mankiewicz's structure, but it definitely has a lighter tone to it. And then when they came to Superman 3, they kind of wrote the same kind of script, episodic, kind of unfocused and rambling and very light and comedic and jokey. And I think Superman 3 is the movie Superman 1 would have been if Donner hadn't and Mankiewicz hadn't come in because because the scripts are very similar in in their approach to the to the character and the story. And of course, Richard Lester, who he gets a lot of brickbats from Superman fans, some of whom I've read, you know, when I read their comments, I'm like, you guys do not know your film history. Oh, Richard Lester was terrible in all of this. Richard Lester is a brilliant filmmaker. He just wasn't a guy suited to do Superman. And so he took it all. He was he's known for his comedy. So he approached everything with a comedic touch. And so the Newman's lightness, Donner's, um, I'm sorry, Lester's emphasis on comedy and then just kind of a loose, unstructured story. You end up with a movie that that kind of just is there. It doesn't really have any of the epic structure and excitement and build that the first two films have. So I, I think it's a, I think it's a casting problem, if you will, you know? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, there's definitely a problem with the, uh, the structure of the story. You're exactly right. Mm. Uh, and yeah, there were some really, I've read parts of that original draft. And I, I just remember the scene that always sticks out in my, my mind from Superman, the original, one of those original drafts you were referring to is the one where, the camera just comes out of the air and, and pans way down and there's Kojak and all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. pulls out a lollipop and says, who loves you, baby, or something like Ex- that. <laughs> what, the, the line that always strikes me in Superman 3, which to me typifies what I'm talking about, is mm-hmm. there's a scene where Lana Lang um, is talking to Clark Kent and she's talking about how exciting life must be in Metropolis, which, of course, we know is kind of a version of New York. And New York's nickname is the Big Apple. Mm-hmm. And so she goes, you're from Metropolis, the Big Apricot. And I'm thinking, like, that's a dumb sitcom line. It's, like, so jokey. And that's in there to be 
to be a joke as opposed to any kind of verisimilitude. And, and I feel like that's the problem with the whole movie is that it's, it just, when it could take it seriously, it goes for a joke. And, and it just, it, took all the, the, the there's no epic quality to Superman three, whereas there's a wonderful epic quality to one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even the central, Id- the central idea of Superman three is wonderful. Superman turns evil and eventually splits into and fights himself. That's a great idea for a movie. But when they have him turn evil, the things he does is he like he 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 straightens the Tower of Pisa and he blows out the Olympic flame, you know, as opposed to you know, Superman really causing some mayhem. Like what would happen if Superman turned evil and, and wanted to take over the world? Like there was an epic idea there and they went for jokes. They went and, and not, not good jokes, like silliness rather. Yeah. And maybe that's it. Silliness rather than wit or humor. like Superman one has its jokes and its humor, but mostly it's witty or clever. This is just kind of dumb and so you take this great idea for a Superman movie and you just don't do anything with it. And instead you focus on a bunch of silly villains and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just, it's just a squandered opportunity, I think. Yeah. And David Newman is a good writer. I mean, I would like to point that out. I mean, he yes. uh, had, you know, obviously been involved with uh, some very noteworthy films. One of my favorites, What's Up, Doc? Yes, absolutely. On that. So he was great at the comedy stuff. That's that's a great example of what he's good at. But when he's uh, an action film, not so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 the thing about, you know, I mean, now that we're so inundated with superhero movies, it's hard to remember all of this. But there was in that era with the success of Star Wars and the success of Superman. Obviously, there were lots of imitators, but you had all these sort of established, all those movies were really made by young filmmakers or filmmakers, you know, on the cusp. And when they started to do these other things, all the filmmakers were maybe established and they couldn't take it seriously. And they wanted to sort of let you, the audience, know that they knew this was kind of silly stuff. And that's why you see a lot of movies with a lot of campiness and a lot of jokiness, as opposed to taking the characters seriously in their own world, which is what Richard Donner did so well in the first Superman movie. And I think Newman was a very good writer. He and Benton, of course, wrote, you know, many terrific films, Bonnie and Clyde, What's Up Doc, um, and so on. But I think he he was also a very smart man. And the thing is, I think they just couldn't quite, they had to let you know they knew this was kind of silly. And, 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 that it doesn't work when you do it turns to paste when you do that you know yeah yeah we could definitely do without uh, superman at the bar eating uh, flicking peanuts <laughs> right well, well of all the things he could do you know like that that seems like a waste of the opportunity right um yeah and the other opportunity you know they also talk about the you know the world's most dangerous computer by you know this com- computer genius Richard Pryor, but they don't do anything with that either. You know it's kind of I mean they come up with this really cool set in the end, and he fights against you know whatever he's fighting against, but you can't really tell. But it, it's like it, the tongue was too much in cheek, I think. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that slapstick ballet that opens the film. That's just a little. <laughs> 
you know, I think it's kind of funny. I mean, it makes me – it's typical of Richard Lester-type stuff, but yeah. it just doesn't feel like it belongs in a Superman movie. That's the problem. It's so tonally inconsistent with everything we've come to know about right. Superman films. And that I was immediately – even seeing it, I think I was on the cusp of turning 13 years old at that point where it came out. And I just remember mm-hmm. seeing it. And thinking it was, you know, I chuckled and I laughed in that way you would at that age. But I thought, this just doesn't feel like a Superman movie. Uh, Well, the original idea of it was kind of clever. The idea was supposed to be that one little thing goes wrong and it leads to a chain reactions of thing going wrong until it results in this big disaster. And then Superman would come in and save the day. The problem in 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 the writing and the final execution of it all the little things that are going wrong do do not lead to the thing that leads to Superman coming to save the day, which kind of happens separately from the little slapstick ballet. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think if they had stayed with the original idea, it still might have been too funny, but you would have said, OK, it's lead, uh, this is the kind of situation that calls for Superman. But instead, it just it's kind of it's just kind of there and you don't really understand why it's there. And it, and some of it's amusing, but. Richard Lester, in his best films, there's a sharp satirical sense to his work. This is very just light, silly slapstick stuff, and it's stuff we had seen before, you know. Oh, yeah. So I, it didn't have much teeth to it. Um, and I, again, and the other, the other big change in the film is that the original Superman and Superman Two parts of it were filmed in New York City. And this was filmed in Calgary, uh, in Canada, Alberta, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that just doesn't look like New York City. It looks like a kind of a nice, quiet, suburban kind of city kind of thing. It doesn't have the epic sense of Metropolis the way that that the original films did. So it kind of looks a little lazy and cheap too you know on top of the fact that the slapstick totally doesn't really work and uh so it just it starts to feel a little cheap and a little kind of shoddy around the edges you know yeah some of those effects are they're they're not bad per se but they're borderline mm. on they're questionable let's just put it that yes way, so. yeah yeah <laughs> and and even the first rescue is a guy his car gets stuck on a fire hydrant and the car fills up with water and Superman, you know, flies in and pulls the roof off the car, except he clearly pulls a pre-scored roof off the car. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it doesn't look that amazing. And it's like it's kind of a silly thing. Like that would not happen in real life. Therefore, like, does that really require like people couldn't just open the door and let the guy out, you know, or he couldn't. It, it just it it wasn't a big epic save like you want Superman to do. It was light and it was silly. And that's. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, again, the ongoing issue with that film. Yeah, it would have been much more interesting to have the onlookers rescue the man just as Superman arrives. And then he's like, oh, well, I just wasted my time. There you go. There you go. (laughs) You know, made made him put a little egg on his face or whatever. That would have been a better way to do it. Oh, well, what could have been? Yeah. Yeah, And then there's that uh, sequence that appears not long after that where he freezes the lake and flies along with the uh, the frozen lake. And that's a little, uh, you know, I remember seeing that and thinking, "Eh, I don't know. Yeah, it has the same problem, which is it's, it's maybe on paper not a bad idea, but it's all just 
very cat like Richard Lester, as good a director as he is, he's not an action director. I, and yeah. I don't think it's because he's not talented at action, because if you ever see a movie like Juggernaut, he's terrific at it. Oh, absolutely. But I, yeah. I, I, I don't think he was particularly interested in the action. So that whole sequence has kind of a casual feel to it. Like you never the the entire film, you never get a sense of a ticking clock or high stakes. Um, and that sequence does not have a ticking clock or high stakes. It has a little bit of a ticking clock with, you know, they don't want to heat up the, the, the acid, but it's not enough to register. And so it's, you know, there's a couple of interesting bits in it, but it never really gels into, wow, that was an exciting sequence. And I, I really think that's kind of true throughout the film, you know. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of that going on. You're exactly right. Uh, and it's funny, you were mentioning the uh, his choice, well, I don't know if it was his choice, but the, the fact that they, the production was shot in Calgary, Alberta, a lot of it, uh, it is, just as a curio, I like to mention that um, uh, Richard Lester was returning to the scene of previous crimes, as it were, because this was where yeah. he had shot uh, Help the, uh, at Battersea Power Station. Uh, there's a sequence where he leaves Gus in a coal mine, and that was actually yes. in Help. Yeah. Previously, so, uh, yeah. Well, that was actually um, that was a famous location. They used it for um, uh, for your eyes only. The opening sequence where Bond is flying uh, the helicopter through the oh, yeah. abandoned pack. Like that, that was a hot location there for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, no, a lot, well, a lot of it was filmed around around London. The, the exteriors were filmed mostly in Canada and then the interiors and and some of the exterior stuff was done in England. Like none of it was done in the States except maybe some second unit stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely feels that way too. It really does have that feel. Like you said, uh, well, we'll talk a little bit about the casting here. Uh, it's mm. a little controversy, uh, because Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder have always, it's always been said that they were angry with the way that the Salkinds treated Richard Donner. And, uh, they were going to stand with Donner and not really participate in Superman three or, very little. I mean, Margot Kidder returns as Lois Lane, but, you know, with what happened at the end of Superman 2, uh, I felt there was such promise on what happened there that they could follow through on that, and you know, there was a lot of possibilities, shall we say, with that yes. plot line that was just completely ignored, which I thought was really odd. Yes. <laughs> uh, and they say that maybe the Salkinds reportedly punished her by reducing her role in Superman 3, but then... Hackman later denied those claims, and he said that he was just busy with other commitments, and that if he kept returning as Lex Luthor, it would be like a horror film sequel where the serial killer keeps coming back from the grave, and then the Salkinds denied that uh, they cut Margot Kidder's part in retaliation, so there's a lot of he said, she said going on there. Yeah, the, the reality of it all is, is I think, a little different because um, uh, I've heard all those rumors and things. I, I, I don't think Hackman was ever going to come back. I, I don't think he was ever written into the script. Um, he did not come back to do the reshoots on Superman 2, and I've heard various uh, versions of that. Some of it is, is that he didn't want to uh, come back when Donner was fired. Uh, and some of it was, he said he didn't have the time. He did show up at all the premieres and things. But the truth is, for the same reason that Marlon Brando was cut out of Superman 2, he had a percentage deal and the Salkinds didn't want to pay him. And I think, I think Hackman was probably too expensive. The, the whole reason they got, um, 
Brando and Hackman in the first place for the first two films was that's how they raise the money. Like people will, will finance movies with movie stars in them. So they got these two big movie stars and they put them in the film and that got the financing. Um, and then when it came time to do Superman three, Superman was the star. Like people were going to go to Superman movies. So they didn't need a big star for financing. And Christopher Reeve at that point was a big star, you know, and so was Richard Pryor who was a big star, but not, he didn't cost anywhere near what Hackman or Brando cost. So I don't think Hackman was ever included in it. I mean, he's not in the original story treatment. Um, I do think Margot Kidder was in the film. I don't think the Salkinds wanted to employ her, and she's clearly not integral to the story. I think that was a Warner Brothers insistence, that they wanted continuity. They didn't want to just vanish Lois Lane. Um, and so she's in it, but clearly it's just a cameo. I think she shot maybe two or three days on the film and I don't know what she was paid, but she was certainly not paid, you know, what she was paid to be in the first couple of films where she had a major part. So, yeah, I mean, all of that was kind of, kind of, again, it's movie making, right? And it's movie making at a price They the Salkinds were determined to make Superman three on budget and not go over so they could retain all the ownership of it and they didn't need the big people anymore and that's that's just the truth they needed christopher reeve they didn't really need anybody else at that point yeah that's true that's true but i just think yeah. that's such a missed opportunity with that oh sure with the plot line being so integral to superman 2 and it's just like well that never happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay. well yeah i mean again not Donner and Mankiewicz had said at different times, and and I kind of think it's probably true, is they had said that the Salkinds were never really clear on what they wanted to do with this character. Because, again, they were Europeans. The character didn't have the same cultural currency in Europe as it ever did in America. And and if you look at some of the early versions, like some of it is comic and some of it is sort of this weird kind of cosmic stuff. And I think it took Donner and Mankiewicz to figure out what a Superman movie was. Once that template was established, I think the Salkinds were content to go along with it. But I, I don't know if they ever had like a really strong idea of what they wanted those films to be. So it was kind of left to the people that they brought in and, and in, again, in the Newman's and Lester's case, they were interested in kind of light comedy and silliness. So there it went. And therefore all that epic plot material just went out the window. You know, they just didn't, they weren't as interested in it as, as I think Donner would have been if he had carried on, you know? Yeah. That's a real shame. Yeah. yeah I, I remember yeah. even being, like I said, seeing it uh, as a teenager, being disappointed that 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 uh, plot line was jettisoned for whatever yeah, reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, I mean, you know, it's it, it was a big deal. I mean, if Superman is going to give up everything that he is for this person, you know, and to just pretend it never existed or whatever didn't happen. Yeah. Oh, well, it, it also sets up an odd thing in Superman three, which is Superman two very much makes the point that Superman cannot have an earthly relationship yes. with a woman. Yes. And yet there's a love story in Superman three. And you're like, well, wait, isn't this going to turn out the same way the thing with Lois turned out that, that said the single best piece of casting in the movie 
And I think the most successful piece of that film is Annette O'Toole, Annette O'Toole as um, Lana Lang. I, I think she's wonderful in the part. And I think that's where the real heart of the film lays. And I think Chris Reeve plays with her wonderfully. I, I don't think it really makes much sense from a story point of view. But to me, it's the best part of the film. I agree. I love her. She's she's great. And uh, I've been a fan of hers ever since I saw her in uh, playing Tammy Wynette in a television film in yeah. 1981, <laughs> I think it was. So, yeah, 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 yeah. so this was uh, just a couple of years after that. So I was already familiar with her. And, uh, yeah, she's she's real charming in the film. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of, um, of her uh, take on that character. Yeah. yeah, and and that's where Lester's shown and even the Newman's shown because the the kind of slightly screwball quality they gave to Lana Lang that worked. It didn't. I don't really think it worked in the rest of the film, but it did work with her, and she played it wonderfully, and and she played it wonderfully with Chris as well. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. True. Very true. Yeah, so um yeah, so the casting like I said it was it was quite interesting with some of the things that were uh, uh as we just talked about there with um bringing in new characters, getting rid of old ones. And of course Richard Pryor as we talked about, he had accepted a 5 million dollar salary to appear in this film and following the release, <laughs> release of this film, he signed a 5-year contract with Columbia worth 40 million uh as or at least that's what it was reported at the time. So it's yeah. interesting to note that his career was certainly on an upward trajectory. Uh, the effects and animation, supposedly, uh, they credited them, quote unquote, the same special effects team from the prior two <laughs> films. That was the quote. sort of, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the the key people on Superman one and two were Derek Mettings, who was the brilliant master of miniature shooting, um, Colin Cheevers who was a, a physical effects guy, and then Roy Field, Les Bowie, um, a, who were the visual effects guys. Um, Les Bowie had passed away by the time Superman 3 came along, uh, and the other guy was uh, Zoran Parasic, who created the um, the uh, Zoptic system, which was one of the optical systems that they used to help Superman fly. Um, by the time they got to Superman 3, Les Bowie had died, uh, Derek Mettings did not work on the film. Colin Cheevers took over the miniature effects and they're okay. And I, I don't think they're as good as Superman one, but they're okay. Um, you know, there's some good physical effects in it. Uh, they did the visual effects. Superman flying are good. They are clearly used the same approaches that were used in Superman one and to a lesser extent in Superman two. The difference I think is that Richard Donner would make them do shots over and over and over again until everything was perfect. And uh, that was not the case in Superman 2 with Richard Lester. And I think it's really not the case in Superman 3. There's some very good effects in the film, but there's a lot of effects where you can sort of see the seams showing. And, and it's just a matter of they like there's a lot of color mismatching in his costume and things in, in some of the blue screen shots, which there's like two in Superman, the movie. And there's probably like 10 or 15 in, in Superman three. So I, I just don't again, not necessarily an attack on Richard Lester. I don't think he was that interested in it. And he didn't have the same exacting sense of it that uh, Donner did. And therefore the effects are fine. I don't know that they're as terrific as they could be. 
Yeah, uh, but they're certainly better than Superman 4. We'll go on record. As uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, me playing with a um, you know crayon set would be better than Superman 4. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Those uh, the good old folks at Canon. What more can you say? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh, so we'll move along. Yeah. Um, so I guess it looks like they started shooting this in June of 1982 uh, as we as we talked about previously, Pinewood Studios, I'm trying to find, I tried to find uh, an actual uh, tally of how long it took to shoot the film, uh, but I couldn't find uh, the, the date in terms of when it, the, it finally finished, where it wrapped. So I'm not yeah. really sure. About I, I think it, I think it shot most from June till I believe sometime in the, in the early fall of that year. Cause again, it was a pretty, not as epic a shoot as Superman the movie, but it, you know, they moved all over the place. It was a big production. Um, and they had two units going, of course, cause they had the, um, they had the, the special effects unit going at the same time that, that they had the principal photography. So I, I believe it shot throughout most of that summer. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds about right. I would assume. And of course there's the normal time that it takes in post-production to get these things done. Yeah. Um, uh, Atari, speaking of that sort of thing, they were part of Warner <laughs> yes. Brothers. They created yes. the video game computer animation for the missile defense scene, which yeah. really uh, looks a little... <laughs> I guess at the time it looked fine, but not so much from... It, a, actually, no, it didn't look good at the time either. Okay, I, I, don't, I didn't <laughs> I remember think it sitting did, in the audience, everybody was groaning, like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yep, and it looks obviously worse 40 years on. Uh, I don't yeah. need to elaborate on that, but I just thought that was interesting to mention. Uh, got a few, little bit of trivia here. Um, the you know one other thing about the casting that I did want to mention was that uh, Christopher Reeve really didn't want to play Superman once again because he was kind of fed up with the role and he obviously felt Donner had been unfairly treated as we talked about and then tony danza was considered at one point supposedly you know <laughs> that, that i think might be a stretch yeah, <laughs> yeah only because i know that um reeve had actually already signed on for superman 3 by the time superman 2 premiered um so if they considered tony danza it must have been uh, <laughs> it must have been before superman 2 came out although there was um Christopher Reeve did hold out when it came time to come back for Superman 2 because famously that production had been suspended. And by the time they were ready to begin reshooting um, or resuming shooting, I should say, uh, Reeve's contract had actually expired. So um, he did hold out for more money and renegotiation to do Superman 2. If there was a Tony Danza consideration, that would have been when it was. It, but I, he he had actually signed up before Superman two even came out. Yeah, that uh, and of course you know these are just things we we don't really know for sure. Yeah. But it's just always there. There is a um, uh, I think a deleted scene with Frank Oz uh, where he had a cameo in the film as a surgeon um, supposedly yes. <coughs> later included in the uh, TV extended version. Uh, which film. which which is <laughs> like all those extended versions <laughs> kind of goes on and on and on but um yeah yeah no yeah he was in it and um i'm trying to think if there was i have heard of that one i don't know who else might have been there on the cutting room floor you know yeah um i'm not sure either 
uh, about the uh, it's but you know we can get into the television version here in, in a second. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, they say that Richard Pryor, you know, previously had set himself on fire freebasing cocaine, and he was back to his old habits during the production of this film. They say, uh, yes, I have out heard of his that. brains during yeah. filming. Um, so there was that, and the video game that Ross Webster, the uh, villain played by Robert Vaughn, mm-hmm. uh, the video game that he was playing in the film was that was. Uh, was developed especially for the movie, but it had to be downgraded because supposedly the original version was considered too realistic for 1983. So, I, <laughs> I have heard that. I don't have proof of it, but sure, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the, I think again, not comedic enough. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. Um, and then uh, I guess we should talk about uh, they for sex appeal they brought in um, you know Robert uh, Ross Webster's assistant uh, uh, his his psychic nutritionist <laughs> psychic nutritionist yeah there we go that's what yeah. it was I couldn't remember exactly what she was referred to as uh, this was she had previously that's Pamela Stevenson I believe Stevenson right previously from um, uh, not world. necessarily the news right. and, yeah. Yeah, actually a terrific comedic actress and actually eventually a psychotherapist. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we, have a little, we have a few things in common, she and I. Indeed you do. Indeed you yeah. do. Um, I actually think she's another bright spot in the movie. I don't care for the character. You know, mm-hmm. I, again, I, I think all too jokey. Yeah. But I think she did a really nice job with it. Um. I actually like Annie Ross, who plays uh, Ross Webster's sister. I also think does a very nice job in a part I wish they hadn't written. But um, and the trivia there is for those who know, Annie Ross actually provided most of the um, the dialogue dubbing for Sarah Douglas in Superman, too. Uh, it's actually Annie Ross's voice that you hear most of the time when you see Ursa on screen in Superman, too. I don't think I knew that. That's one you yeah. have on me. That's one I somehow missed. <laughs> Which yeah. is a friend of Richard Lester's, as I understand yeah. it. So he, he used her to revoice Ursa and then brought her in. I think she does a great job. I just, again, it's not a character that I particularly care for. Though she is responsible for what I understand is if you are of a certain age, a lot of nightmares for children because there's the scene in the end where she's turned into a robot by the uh, by the supercomputer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't make much of an impression on me, but I was a bit older when it came out. I have younger brothers who tell me that that haunted their nightmares for months after seeing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, there you go. It didn't really bother me that much either, but I think my sister uh, who went with me to see it, she... Uh... <laughs> she, she, was a little, she was a little disturbed by it, I think, from what I remember. Yeah. So, yeah, totally. But yeah, uh, and just as a curio, I will mention that there's a uh, scene with a boy at a photo booth, and that's the same actor who played the Clark Kent, uh, played Clark Kent as a child in Superman the movie. So Yes, uh, yeah, uh, the, the one who comes out of the spaceship. Right, yep, and, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, same same kid. Uh, yeah, they brought a few of those those folks back. Um they use much of the same production team from the Lester shoot of Superman 2. So Bob Painter was the director of photography, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and the same production designers. So, And my understanding, it was a pretty like there aren't a whole lot of uh, stories from the shooting of Superman 3, because from what I understand, it was a pretty smooth shoot. Everyone yeah. got along. Lester was known as a fast director, so they didn't go over budget or over schedule. 
um, you know, no major cast conflicts or personality problems. So, so from that point of view, it was a pretty efficient production. Well, we will yeah. talk about uh, as we get towards the end of uh, everything that was going on. It is interesting to talk about the music. We will talk about that. <laughs> uh, we uh, talked about that in our last look at uh, Superman Two. The last time we covered these uh, this this franchise, we talked about the addition of Ken Thorne uh, and the uh, replacement of John Williams, and not um, not really uh, to better effect i should say uh, well ken thorne was a, a guy who had a british composer who'd done a lot of smaller english films and he'd done a lot of work for richard lester but when when they came time to do superman 2 he was given this job of basically taking john williams music and rearranging it for for Superman 2. So it's it's basically the music is by John Williams, but the sort of cutting and splicing of it into different places in the movie was Ken Thorne. And also he, he had a reduced orchestra because John Williams had the wonderful London Symphony Orchestra. The one used for Superman 2 was much smaller, so the sound of the music was just much less impressive, like a little too undercooked, I think. And that carries over into Superman 3. At that point, he was not using necessarily all of John Williams' music, but Ken Thorne was, again, basically told to use John Williams' themes, and he just repeats a lot of the same music that was in the first film, just now completely in different places, like things that were um, the Krypton theme in Superman the movie are now used to score action sequences. I, I don't think it's Ken Thorne's fault. I think that's what he was told to do. I think it, it it's a very hard way to, because ideally a score should be composed for the film, not sort of pasted onto a film, which I think is what it was. Um, and again, they had a smaller orchestra. I think he did the best job he could, but I, the music's pretty unimpressive. And they they did, uh, Giorgio Moroder was a big deal at that time because of disco and the success of the flash dance music and Call Me from um, uh, American Gigolo, the Blondie song. So he was contracted to do a bunch of songs for the movie. The funny thing is they get a lot of credit and they were all over the soundtrack album. They're ba they're barely heard in the film if they're even heard at all. Yeah, I remember there's one blaring from a car, I think, when uh, uh, Richard Pryor gets out of the car, you can hear one of the songs. Um, yes, yes. I think that's the only one I recall hearing. <laughs> yeah, and, and, <laughs> they're in the background of a few other things, but nothing you'd ever notice. Yeah. You know? And even there's even the bizarre inclusion of Roger Miller on one of those songs. Which I thought was <laughs> really, uh, reading that soundtrack album, I was like, Roger Miller in a Superman movie? I don't know. <laughs> even then I thought it was strange way back when. But That's when you were entering that period, that weird period where they were putting, like soundtrack albums were becoming sort of pop compilations instead of the actual score. Yes. Um, I, I don't actually know how much of the score is on the album for Superman 3. I know a lot of those songs are there, though. Yeah. Thankfully, for anybody who is curious, there is a box set that contains the complete scores for all four films. I don't yep. know if it's still in print, but you can get that. And uh, that's one of the bright spots of the fourth film is the Alexander Courage score, because, you know, obviously he did, you know, Star Trek and the Waltons sure, sure. and many other things. 
uh, and you know he uh, kind of reorchestrates the John Williams stuff. But I, I think it's it does an adequate job for number four. So it was good to yeah. it's good to have all of those in one place, uh, as it were. Um, we will talk about the marketing right quick. Um, so William Kotzwinkel, who mm-hmm. is no stranger to novelizations, uh, having <laughs> yep, pinned yep. a sequel to E.T., uh, among many it, other things. And, and the original novelization. And the, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he pinned the novelization to Superman 3. And, and famously, the actually, it's the only novelization from the Superman series there are novels that came out for Superman 1, which was, uh, I believe, called The Last Son of Krypton. And then Superman 2, there was a novel called Miracle Monday. But they are not novelizations of the films, even though they include pictures from the films in them. And the reason for that was that Mario Puzo had retained the, the, the uh, story publication rights to his screenplays. And so basically he, he, he either had to write the novelizations himself which he did not do, or they had to pay him to allow novelizations to be written, which they did not want to do. Um, so there are no novelizations for Superman 1 or 2, even though you can find things that look like novelizations. Kotzwinkle was the first guy who actually novelized the film as it existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um... I would be interested in reading that. I would like to actually see if I could pick up a copy. I would just be curious because they say there are some nasty undertones in the book, uh, you know, that in, in his attempts to novelize the uh, the screenplay. And uh, I think one of the reviews was something along the lines of, adults may enjoy the novel on its own merits as a black, black comedy of sorts, but it's not written for kids, and most of the under-15 crowd will either be puzzled or revolted by Kotzwinkel's dour humor. So. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I read it years ago. I don't really remember, but now you've got me curious. I need to go find a copy. Yeah, I've got to do the same. So, yeah. And I totally It also yeah. it, it all it, the book cover is the poster of the movie and is mm-hmm. and as sort of goofy as the movie is, it's a great poster. <laughs> it's it is. Book. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, <laughs> Superman with a uh, Richard Pryor where he's flying him about. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. yeah, it's good art. You're right about that. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about the television edition before we finish up here. Of course, we alluded to it earlier. A separate extended edition was produced, aired on ABC. Opening credits were in outer space, featuring an edited version of the film's end credit theme music, serving yep. as the opening theme. And well, that was the, 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 when the film came out, uh, you had alluded earlier to the slapstick opening, and the credits play over that slapstick opening in a very weird type type font um which is actually quite hard to read for some reason and i guess when they, they put it on abc people were like we want the starfield titles back so they just created this whole new sequence using that same the same lettering unfortunately but yeah they they gave it an opening to make it seem more like superman one and superman two yeah that's very interesting i i never knew the reasons behind that but yeah mm-hmm yeah, people. That was one of the things because people love those original titles for those first two films. Oh, and great. I don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody loves the titles for Superman three. Yeah, so. I was gonna say. Yeah. yeah. And then they they put they put a number of things back into the film. I know Richard Lester had a concern that they put way too much um, way too much of the footage of Richard Pryor back in. 
and the you know not necessarily new scenes in particular but just extending the existed ones and of course comedy even even if you don't care for the comedy in superman 3 is all about timing and by adding in all these extra bits and pieces whatever timing there was was pretty much shot you know so i i know richard lester was not happy with the tv cut i can imagine yeah uh when it comes to a movie of this nature timing is is very important that's exactly right. He had even felt that because uh, he had cut um, his for his director's cut of the film before it was theatrically released. Um, uh, he had felt he, he had cut back Richard Pryor so that it worked better. And Warner Brothers and the Salkinds thought, no, put put more Richard Pryor back in. And he felt that there was probably too much of the, the jokiness in the theatrical cut. And then when they doubled it in the TV version, I think he was, I don't know if he was beside himself because I don't know how much he cared, but I know he, he didn't approve of it. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, there, there's uh, most of these deleted scenes, of course, um, on the deluxe edition of Superman 3, which was released on DVD and Blu-ray. And um, it... Um, you know, it includes most of these scenes there. And there have been some fan edits that put all this back in, uh, yes. in place. <laughs> there are uh, lots of fan edits. <laughs> whether you want it or not, yeah. uh, there are. And there's. I'm just constantly amazed at how many people really, really, really want that extended cut of Superman 4. They're constantly, uh, the guy who runs uh, the Warner Archive, uh, George Feltenstein, is constantly, I hear him on yeah. a podcast, and he's constantly having to field questions about, what what state are the what state is that in? Are we gonna get it? And yeah. he basically says that it exists, but it's gonna have a, have to take a lot of work to get it into shape. And they would have to Warner Brothers would have to actually pony up the money for that. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't know if that's gonna happen or not. But. I- I'm always fascinated in that too because I think there's an idea that somehow if they put all that footage <laughs> it's gonna sell back the... in, it'll it'll be a better movie. And, um, <laughs> my, my brother actually had the best quote. He goes, "Well, there'll certainly be more of it. Goes, whether whether it'll be any good or not is is highly unlikely. I don't think. I, I mean, I've seen most of the these the cut scenes from Superman four. It's it's the same problem as the rest of Superman four. So, yes, but, you know. People like to dream, so it's okay. Yes. We had the writer of uh, Superman 4 on our podcast years ago. To, I think it was maybe for the 30th anniversary, and he uh, he basically explained exactly what went wrong. Uh, oh, yeah. Based on his original screen, what he had originally written versus what came out of the film. and uh, it I, was. I actually read that script uh, back around the time mm-hmm. right before the movie came out. And and it, I don't have it around. I, it's somewhere in storage, and I got to pull it out because I remember it was really good. Yeah. And and but it was really good, requiring a proper budget and a proper <laughs> director. And uh, and they just went for cheesy and low budget. But but I remember reading it and thinking, wow, this is a big improvement over Superman three. And and then the movie came out and it was sort of gobsmacking yeah. <laughs> how awful it was. I think but, his heart uh, sank yeah. when he saw it, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> no, I think yeah, because he and his partner, you know, they wrote some decent films in that yeah. era, and that you know they're good writers. So I can imagine. I've never spoken to him about it, but I'm sure he was heartbroken. Yes, you know, and, and the thing, you know, circling back to Superman three, I, I do want to say like it doesn't have. I don't think it's nearly as a good a movie at all as the first two. 
And then someone had a great quote. It's not mine, but they said about the Superman movies is each succeeding Superman movie is half as good as the preceding Superman movie. So <laughs> like, like I think Superman two is a bit of a letdown from Superman. And I think Superman three is a letdown from Superman two. And then of course, Superman four. Um, but I, I do want to say there are good things in the movie. And I think we should highlight that, you know, I, I think overall it doesn't work. It is too silly and just too lazy and unfocused in its storytelling. But Annette Tool is terrific in the movie. Um, I also think when he's given moments, Richard Pryor, he has a couple of serious moments in the movie, and I think they're really effective. Um, there's, there's one moment where the, uh, Robert Vaughn, the villain, is talking about, you know, doing something to accumulate more money, and Richard Pryor just quietly goes, but you have so much already. And and it's really effective. Yeah, it is. And and there's a moment in the end where they're basically killing Superman, and I, Robert Vaughn says something like, "You're going to go down in history as the man who killed Superman." And Pryor very quietly goes, "No," and and it works. And um, and even the the bit at the end when uh, they're in the coal pit and and Superman, you know. You know, suggest you get a job. He just he says thanks a lot, man. And it, it's very Richard Pryor could be very real when he wanted to be, and um and I think he has some really nice moments in the film that are not necessarily comedic. I don't know if the comedy works. I, I think it's all a little too broad and silly. But the real moments work very well. Um and the the other thing that gets overlooked a little bit is uh, Christopher Reeve was um very, you know, obviously applauded for what a wonderful job he did in the first two pictures of essentially playing two different characters. He, he played Clark Kent, obviously, in Superman. What's kind of interesting in Superman 3 is he plays four characters. He plays Superman. He plays Clark Kent as we know him. He also plays a quieter version of Clark Kent. When he's with Lana Lang, he's much less... Um, Silly, like the, even in Superman one and two, his Clark is a very um, screwball comedy type character. And in Superman three, when he's with Lana, he's he's not slapsticky. He's he's a little quieter, a little more real. And there's a really lovely moment between the two of them in the hotel at the end where where he's a, he's playing him as a really real person. And I think that's very, um, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think he's really impressive. And then, of course, he plays the Superman gone bad. And even though they don't give him much to do, he, he, he delineates a separate character. So, you know, kudos to that man in, in those films, you know. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. You can always find something good if you look hard enough, and that Superman mm -hmm. three is no, no exception. Um, yeah. yeah, it did gross sixty million dollars. It was the twelfth um, biggest grossing film of nineteen eighty three in North America, and it. Uh, we will say that it had its world premiere at the Uptown Theater in Washington D.C. on June twelfth in eighty three, mm -hmm. and then had its New York premiere on June the fourteenth. 1983 at uh, Cinema One and released in theater June 17th of 83. Yes. And uh, it holds a 30% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> uh, or a uh, rating of 4.6 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes based on 56 reviews 
Leonard Maltin said that it was an appalling sequel that trashed everything Superman was about for the sake of cheap laughs and a co-starring role for Richard Pryor. The film was nominated for two Razzie Awards, including Worst Supporting Actor for Richard Pryor and Worst Musical (laughs) Score for Giorgio Moroder. There you go, there you go. So, yeah. Anyway. I I do have a good personal story connected with the film, though. The occasion of its release in New York was the one time I got to meet Richard Lester, which was very cool. Um, Because the the, uh, Museum of Modern Art, in celebration of that of the film opening did a one day retrospective of Richard Lester films. So I remember they showed um Petulia and Robin and Marion and the knack and how to get it. And I went with a friend of mine and we spent all day in the theater watching these films, which at that time I had not seen because, you know, the pre video days, uh, they had come out before I was a regular moviegoer and we really enjoyed it. And at the end of the day, Richard Lester came in and said a few words to the audience dressed in his tux because he was heading uptown to the New York premiere of Superman three. And so he gave him a little bit of a talk. And on his way out, I got to shake his hand and say hello and that I was a fan of his work. And he was very nice and didn't, you know, he didn't stop. He kept moving because he had to go to the premiere. But um, I'm a huge Richard Lester fan. I'm not a huge Richard Lester Superman fan. But so uh, that was a nice treat for me uh, on the occasion of that film opening. It doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the movie, though. So... <laughs>